Hello and welcome to Checked Out. We're broadcasting from Euclid Public Library in beautiful Euclid, Ohio. I'm Frank Antloga, Adult Services Librarian, and for Casey Armstrong, the Director of the Library. And I'm Mike Stein, Assistant Manager of Adult Services. We talk about our favorite books, movies, services, and events with our favorite people and our favorite community. Each podcast will feature a theme. Today, we're talking with Farmer Lee Jones about vegetables. Our special guest is a celebrity farmer and cookbook author whose farm market you can visit in Huron on your way to Cedar Point. You can also find his book, The Chef's Garden, A Modern Guide to Common and Unusual Vegetables on Amazon.com and at the Euclid Public Library and other libraries. Welcome, Farmer Lee. Hey, thank you so much. Appreciate being on. Thanks for joining us. So like I said, you have a farm, family farm out in Huron, Ohio, about an hour east from Euclid. And I understand it has been in your family for generations. So could you start off just tell us a little bit about that and your background? Well, absolutely. The the region is an amazing microclimate. Of course, Lake Erie is the shallowest of all the Great Lakes. Consequently, it's the warmest. And European settlers recognized this as a tremendous growing region. In fact, it was huge in wine grapes even before Napa Valley. Now, we won't ever get Napa Valley to admit that, but it is actually true. But also, the European settlers knew that it was also a great region for growing grapes, but it was a tremendous vegetable region. And at one point, as near as we can figure, there were over 330 vegetable growers in Erie County alone. It appears to be the largest concentration of vegetable growers of any county in the world. Now, you can say, wait a minute, there are counties in California that are from the north to the south to the east to the west. It's 100 percent agriculture, but it's also owned by 30 growers that each have 10 to 20 or 30,000 acres. These are what we would call or we would have called truck farmers. Today, we might call them an artisan farmer, but they were truck farmers. They grew vegetables and they would harvest them and take them into the markets, entirely different markets than what we think of today as a farmer's market. They were a farmer's market, but if you can think about wherever, whatever region of the world that you came from and think about the family-owned grocery stores that existed in your town or your hometown. In our little town of Huron, Ohio, there were over seven grocery stores in our hometown alone. And one by one, those went away, but there were hundreds. Because of the rich diversity in the Euclid and the Cleveland area alone, there was so many different grocery stores because every ethnic pocket had their own grocery store and they had specific foods that they liked. And farmers would come in about midnight after they had harvested and brought them into their barns and washed and cleaned and packed them. And then they would head off to Cleveland to the farmer's markets and they would meet literally hundreds of grocery store buyers. And you sold your wares and you drove home and you started over and you did it again. It was truck farming. So we come from a rich history of vegetable production right here in Erie County in Huron, Ohio. The soil, some of the richest sandy loam in the world. In fact, all old lake bottom about 11,000 years ago, just a couple of years before I was born. But uh, I'm saying that sarcastically. But anyway, I can remember my dad and our family harvesting those vegetables. And my mother sending me along with dad to literally keep him awake on that trip, because usually the farmer was not only the lady or gentleman that grew it, but also the person that picked it, 
had packed it and cleaned it and then trucked it and delivered it. And they were long, hard days. I'm the oldest in the family of three children. And I mean, literally, I can remember just sitting and pounding on my dad's shoulder to try and keep him awake going into Cleveland to these farmers markets. And then we'd come home, get a few hours sleep and do it all over. It was a rough, it was a rough business. One by one, as we all know, we think about those family-owned grocery stores in our communities that disappeared. One by one, those small family farms did too, because ultimately chain grocery stores came into play. They could buy in bigger volumes. And of course, then they they bought, started buying. Yes, and it's hard for us to even think about this because we can get on a freeway and head from Euclid to Chicago and we could be there in six hours and we think nothing of it. But it wasn't that far back in our history that roads and refrigeration had not developed to the point where there was really a lot of outside competition. So if you think about this amazing microclimate that Lake Erie provides, and then you think about Cleveland, Columbus, Detroit, Cincinnati, all of these large metropolitan areas surrounding this amazing microclimate, those farmers did really well. But as the roads and refrigeration started to get better, then changed grocery stores came into play. One by one, those family-owned grocery stores went away. And one by one, ultimately, the small family farms started to go away. We've seen a steady decline in family farms in Ohio and in the U.S. throughout the years. What challenges have Ohio's family farmers faced today? Well, you know, it is a great question. And, you know, as those chain grocery stores came into play, as the uh, roads and refrigeration got better, then the competition increased and it was done on a larger scale, the economy of scale, doing it more efficiently instead of it being a family that could farm 100 acres, which is about all one family could handle. You know, one by one, those 100 acre farms went away because they couldn't supply enough product for chain grocery stores and they could do it so much more efficiently on a broad, massive scale. Unfortunately, and I don't hold this against the farmers, it's not the farmer's fault. In the United States, we measure for the wrong results. We measure for how efficiently we can produce and, and how many tons per acre we can produce. We don't measure for the integrity of the product. We measure for how cheaply we can produce it. And American farmers, as it relates to our income, really think about this. As it relates to our income, American farmers produce food cheaper than any other country in the world. As it relates to our income, we're the cheapest food source in the world as it relates to our income. Yet we have the highest health care in the world. From 1920 to 2020, the nutritional level in vegetables has gone from 50 to 80 percent down. It's a decline from 1920 to 2020, 50 to 80 percent decrease and continuing to go down. So if you've got that graph in your mind, now let's think about another graph, a little bit scary. From 1920 to 2020, same same time period, a 3000 percent increase in kidney, liver, heart, cancer disease, attention deficit disorder, autism, childhood obesity, allergies, diabetes, a 3,000% increase while the nutritional levels are going down. I think that to answer really the question, the competition of doing things on a much broader monoculture scale 
to produce for the most tons per acre at the most efficient price was probably one of the, the big factors that really drove the small family farm out. And the reality is it takes a lot of resources to be able to get into farming today. It's difficult for a young person that wants to, to get into agriculture to be able to, to get into agriculture on a broad scheme. I think that there's hope. I think it's exciting. This isn't all doom and gloom. Um, for a couple of acres, you can be in at a farmer's market. And we've seen a surge of farmer's markets, which is a wonderful thing. Um, so I think that there's points of entry for folks that want to get into agriculture on a small scale. And I think ultimately that's going to be a better product uh, than the monoculture. Yeah, I have a friend who is just his own person. He takes things to various farm markets around here. He's always posting on Facebook. I'll be at the Lakewood Farm Market this day. I'll be at Coit Road. I'll be at Trima. There's somewhere around here. So, yeah, that is a very growing thing, I would say. But even with the challenges challenges that you talked about, you found a unique way to rebuild your farm. So tell us how the idea of your book, The Chef's Garden, and I understand you work directly with chefs quite often. So, Well, I would, yep, I'll, I guess I'll back up and kind of answer part of the other question, and then it leads into this one. You know, I think we're all kind of more tuned in right now with the interest rates that are moving up on us. Uh, the government is moving those interest rates up to try and offset the inflation that's going on. That's really a severe issue right now. Um, but if we do a little bit of research back into the near history, uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, interest rates actually hit 22% for about three months. Um, you borrow $100, you pay the $100 back, and you pay $22 for the privilege. We have enjoyed a historic run here for the last 10 or 15 years of borrow $100, you pay $3 to have the privilege of using that. So you pay the 100 back plus $3, and it was $22. Well, we're starting to see that inch up, uh, four, four and a half. I don't think it's done, but the interest rates at 22%, we had a devastating hailstorm. It wiped out all the crops. The banks foreclosed. This would have been in 1983. And I stood at 19 years old with my mother and father and my brother and sister, all of our neighbors, all of our competitors, the bankers, everybody that was there to celebrate our failure. And they auctioned every single piece of equipment off uh, right down to my mother's car and our home. And uh, we were too stupid to know that we couldn't start over. So we did with nothing. And this is not a rags to riches story by any stretch of the imagination. And I'm not trying to paint it out that way. But farming is something that gets in your DNA. And you, they can take the farm, they can take the equipment, but ultimately they can't take your heart, spirit, your soul. And we wanted to farm and we're not sure quite how we were gonna do that. We started back at farmer's markets. Uh, my, at some of those same places that you mentioned, I was at uh, East 152nd and uh, Coit Road in Collinwood. And my dad was at the West Side Market on West 25th. Uh, my brother was at Orange and Woodland. And my grandmother and my aunt were selling out of a Ford Fairmont in the Sinbesky Farmers Market. And my mother and what was to be my brother's mother-in-law sold at the Jamie's Flea Market on Saturdays, every Saturday. And we were in trucks that didn't get a bid at the sheriff's sale and borrowed vehicles in any way we could get vegetables to the market. And we were very fortunate 
that we ran across a woman by the name of Iris Balin. She now goes by Iris Brody. And she was a chef for Prescott Ball and Turban in downtown Cleveland, but she had trained in Europe. And she came to the Coit Road Market and she was looking for squash blossoms. And she said, you know, I believe that the time is right in America that if you would grow for the quality, grow it without chemical, grow it for the flavor, that there might be enough chefs to be able to support you. And we were so desperate for a way to be able to figure out how to survive in agriculture. And what she said really resonated with my dad. He was a generation older. He never felt comfortable. The universities were promoting to, to create a more efficient farm instead of using traditional cultivation methods like mechanical cultivation or using a hoe or pulling weeds by hand to use chemicals to eradicate the weeds. And that was something that never really set well with dad. And here she was saying, you know, maybe there's a way to go back in some ways to the way that we were doing it before the chemical. And of course, Earl Butts, the Secretary of Agriculture in the United States, uh, in the 70s, his message to small family farms was to get bigger to get out. And we couldn't get big enough to compete. And we weren't willing to get out, even though the banks did everything they could to shut us down, which they did. And we started over back at these farmers markets. Iris was encouraging us to grow for the quality, grow without chemical, grow for the flavor. We were so desperate for a way to be able to figure out how to survive in agriculture. We grabbed around both of her ankles and we wouldn't let go of her. And we bugged the heck out of her. And that next winter, we said, we'd like to come in and buy a little of your time. And of course, she wouldn't take a penny for her time, but she had books spread out all over this big conference table. We jumped in our old pickup truck and drove from here on out to Cleveland, about an hour drive into downtown Cleveland and took copious amounts of notes and pages and she pages of, of information of books and varietals that she was looking for. And um, we went to work and. We started working with, uh, I can remember one of the first chefs in Cleveland was Parker Bosley. He was at Sammy's on the Flats and then another chef and then another chef and then another chef. And uh, the Ritz-Carlton's, of course, then came to Cleveland and we worked with them. And then that chef from the Ritz-Carlton got transferred to Phoenix. And we figured that was the end of the relationship. Well, about three months after he was out there, he says, Farmer, you guys really spoiled me when I was in Cleveland. You need to figure out how to get this stuff to Phoenix. Well. We thought he was absolutely crazy. And I think we put an order on Greyhound bus and it got there about seven days later and it was dripping out of the bottom. And he called me and he's like, farmer, what are you doing? You can't put this stuff on Greyhound. You got to put it on FedEx. And so it really kind of uh, opened our world up a little bit. And he had a big event and they had flown seven other executive chefs from Ritz Carlton's from around the country in for this big event. There was Ritz Naples and Ritz Laguna Niguel, uh, Ritz Atlanta, Ritz Buckhead, uh, Ritz DC. And the, all these executive chefs from these other Ritz Carlton's were there. And the chef that was at Phoenix ordered a huge order in and arrived in. Our boxes didn't even have our name or our phone number on them. And all the chefs were like, where in the world are you getting this stuff? And the chef wouldn't give up the name because he didn't figure we'd have enough for everybody. Well, they did the event that went off in grand fashion and they took the chef out for a few uh, after hours cocktails and they got enough cocktails in him that he gave up the phone number. 
And so next thing you know, we were delivering to these restaurants from around the country and it just kind of evolved from there. And you ship your produce to the top restaurants across the U.S. and around the world, right? Where are some of the most interesting places your vegetables have been sent? We've been amazed. Of course, our vegetables are not politically driven. So we have shipped them to President Bush and President Bush's son. And we've sent them to President Obama. So we've sent them to the White House on several occasions for whoever happens to be our president. And it's an honor. Uh, to be able to ship them into them. Um, I actually got to do a little TV stint with Michelle Obama, and that was a huge honor to get to meet the First Lady of the United States. We were putting an edible schoolyard in a classroom right outside of D.C., and uh, she knelt down right beside me, and we planted lettuces together, and it was one of the most incredible experiences of my life to get to meet uh, Michelle Obama. It was a big, big deal. But uh, we sent product down to Disney, we send as far as the Mandarin Oriental Hong Kong. You know, when COVID hit, those restaurants all stopped. Um, they were really in trouble. And so things tend to ripple downhill. When they stopped, the farm here was in trouble because we didn't have the restaurants to supply. And so we opened up a nationwide home delivery because we recognized that we were all afraid to get out and go to grocery stores because of the exposure. And people, wherever they were, could call and order a box and we would put a beautiful box of vegetables together for individuals at home and they could go online and order those or call in because we were all here. Also, you know, if you were doing okay and you knew somebody else was struggling, you could order a box. I had people that would call in and order five boxes or 20 boxes. There was a lady that called and ordered a hundred boxes and she shipped them out to a hundred different people. So it was a way to be able to pass forward if you were in a more comfortable position. And we've continued that on. And we think that even though the restaurants have recovered now, this is something that will continue on because it allows us some diversity because we were really really sweating bullets when those restaurants close down. We have 156 families that help us do this here on the farm. And we were committed to keeping them employed. And we stayed open and we wanted our team to be safe. We wanted them fed and we wanted them to get a paycheck. And that was a painful decision, but it's a decision we stand by today. And we're so happy we did because the restaurants have recovered and our team is in place. We have a thousand years of chef's garden experience here on the farm with families that are have been here in some cases three generations. Um, and they're part of our family. And we have a world exchange program. So we also think that we're probably the most um, international and diverse farms in the world because this international program, we currently have uh, folks from the Philippines, we have Brazil, we have Ukraine, Russia, Georgia, Hungary. Sudan, Mexico, currently represented here on the farm. And I think it adds such a depth of knowledge and just it's just so amazing to have all these ideas that come in from the experiences they've had in their respective countries. And they come here and learn. And in many cases, go back to their countries and finish their agricultural degrees. And then those get carried on onto their farms. In some cases, they go back and finish their degrees and then come back and become part of the long-term Chef's Garden family. So it's really, really a special place. Yeah, that sounds pretty amazing with the people from around the world. And you've been with Michelle Obama and some things in the White House. That's that's great. Uh, what about in Northeast Ohio around here? Where can we find your produce? 
uh, around Euclid or the Cleveland area? Yeah, there's there's so many, and I always hate to start calling places out because I know I'm going to end up missing one. Um, you know, but uh, Chez Francois, we've been doing business with in Vermilion, Ohio, for probably 35 years. Salt is doing some great work. Uh, Brookside Country Club, some of the country clubs. I mean, they're just there's places all Dante. We send product out to Dante. Um, it, it's all see. That's the thing. I just hate start calling out any of the Cleveland ones because I end up missing them. Um, The Cleveland Convention Center, the Ritz-Carlton's. I mean, any place where there's a chef that wants good quality product, we we are happy to take it into them. Uh, Could you share some words of wisdom you would like people to know about the world of vegetables? Absolutely. Eat the rainbow. Get as much color into your diet as possible. And when you can, eat it raw. We've, we actually put a lab in here on the farm. As those nutritional levels have continued to go down, we were really committed to trying to find a way to reverse that. And it's been really exciting to be able to do that. You know how we chokingly talk about, hey, I need some vitamin D. I'm going to go out and get some sunshine because I need some vitamin D. There's so much more truth to that than people even understand. And what's really cool about it, and it's our personal belief that God designed a system far superior to anything that we can fake out chemically or synthetically. It's about working in harmony with nature rather than trying to outsmart it. So what we're doing with our lab right here on the farm is we're testing the soil, just like if you were to go and have blood work drawn. You're high in iron, you're low in iron, you're high in calcium, you're low in calcium. Whatever the par is, find out where you are in the soil, because we believe fundamentally that the balance and the health of the soil is ultimately going to derive back to the health of us. And these soils are so out of balance from all the chemical and the synthetic fertilizer. So we find out what they're deficient in. And this is what's really cool. Based on the deficiency in the soil, we can plant different types of crops. 50% of our acreage in any one year is not planted to sell something that particular year. It's planted to be able to rebalance the soils. So it could be clover, alfalfa, vetch, barley, buckwheat, rice, sedan grass. Um, we have a 15 species planting that will plant into the ground. You're harvesting the energy from the sun. It comes down through the stem, through the roots, into the soil. Then the next year, when we plant the turnip or the beet or the carrot or the radish or the spinach or the green bean or whatever it happens to be, it picks that back up. And then when we eat it, it builds our immune system. It's kind of like the Eastern culture. Get the body in balance to defend against the disease in the first place. The Western culture is, and unfortunately, it's because the pharmaceutical and the chemical companies have made so much money in getting us well that that's the choice that they'd rather go. You get a strep throat. You get a penicillin, a moxicillin, a viacillin. It's some drug to be able to get you well. The Eastern culture is get your body in balance to defend against that disease in the first place. We kind of look at the way that we're trying to farm more like an Eastern culture philosophy and really try and get those soils in balance. Insect issues occur when soils are out of balance and when plants are weak. If you can put healthy plants into healthy soil, you reduce the insect issues but you also create an environment where you have a more nutritious vegetable. In some cases, and we have not mastered this across the board, but what's really exciting is is that in some cases, we're seeing numbers as high as 150 to 300% higher than the USDA average with the nutrient, nutrient density and nitrate oxide. We can change this. We can turn it around. We can move the needle. It's exciting. It's not all doom and gloom. Folks have to be able to put their dollars where they're 
where their interests are and really support these small family farms that are trying to do it the right way. You know, I kind of get a little excited about this stuff. Yeah, I was about to say, I can see why you are successful with your farm. You get very animated about this. Uh, you're very knowledgeable about it. And you break it down in ways that people can understand it. So I can see how that all can translate into what you guys have been doing. Now you've got your first, I don't know if I want to call it a cookbook, but you got your first book. People can't see it, of course. I got it here. Um, and it's available here at the Yuka Public Library and on Libby, at Amazon, other bookstores. What was that experience like creating a book about vegetables? Well, you know, one of the most frequently asked questions was how long did it take you to do the book? And the short answer is two and a half years, but I'd say 40 years of mistakes and trials and tribulations and things that we just screwed up along the way. And maybe occasionally some successes along the way as well. The main guts of this book had to happen right through the middle of COVID. It was work. It was hard to focus on it uh, because there were so many other issues. But maybe it also was one of those really special things that helped us keep from really going stir crazy. Uh, Look, it's too big. It's too heavy to take to the farmer's market with you. But I will guarantee if you get out to a farmer's market and you buy a vegetable, don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated by the re the vegetable that you never saw mom bring home. Get it. Try it. Because I'll guarantee if you bring it back, you can look it up in the book and it's in that book. Eat more vegetables. Don't cook them if you don't have to. And when you do, don't overcook them and eat the rainbow. And one of the other things that we did in the middle of COVID was open to farmer's market. And we made our product available to the community to come out and support us. We're open on Saturdays. And we get a lot of folks from Euclid and Bratnall and Avon, Avon Lake, Lakewood, all over the Cleveland area to come out. And I try and be there every Saturday that I'm in town. And uh, it's a family-owned business, and we love to talk vegetables. So if you folks want to come out and see us at the farm market, we would love to see you on Saturdays from 9 to 3. And just so people know a little bit about the book, they can't see it. It's over 600 pages. It's a beautiful book, pictures of all kinds of vegetables, all kinds of uh, recipes. But it's not all recipes. I don't even know if that's half the book. you got pages and pages of about every vegetable you could imagine, how to select it how to store it, how to clean it. I keep turning pages of vegetables I've never heard of. I turned a page, it's got spinach on one side. Everybody knows spinach. Orac, is that how you pronounce it on the other side? I've never heard of it. So you're going to find things that you never knew about that you can experiment with. You got a history of, of your family and the farm and things like that. So, I mean, you can spend hours with this learning about vegetables. Well, you know, the other, a couple other things that we really tried to work into that. By millions and billions of dollars of marketing, we get a tune that this is what a tomato is supposed to look like, or this is what a squash is supposed to look like. This is the part of that plant you're supposed to eat. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last three years, we know that we have a 40% food waste in America. It's unconscionable to think that we have that kind of food waste when right in each and every one of our own communities, we have folks going hungry. So one of the things that's really important for us is to be able to reduce food waste. We think one of the best ways, if you think about all the resources and all the energy and all the water and all the love and everything that goes into growing a plant, and then we only pick the zucchini off of a plant, or Brussels sprout is a great example of that. The Brussels sprout takes about eight to nine months. It gets up almost five foot tall in some cases. You've got these beautiful leaves that are grown naturally to provide a canopy so that the Brussels sprout itself doesn't sunburn. Nature has its way of taking care of the, its own plant. 
But what's really amazing is, is that all of that is all edible too. I would defy any of anybody that's listening to this. If I were to cook up a batch of collard greens and a batch of Brussels sprout leaves and blindfold you, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. They're in the cruciferous family. We can look at these plants in a different way. One of the things we've learned from chefs over the years is that at every single stage of a plant's life, it offers something unique to the plate. And to be able to look at that plant at a different eye, the corn silks that we're all, we're harvesting sweet corn and you guys are buying sweet corn right now. Don't we grow great sweet corn in Ohio? Wow, who can beat us? And you know, the, the husks and the silks can make a great, uh, corn tea. There's no part of this plant that has to be wasted. We can look at it from a different perspective than what we're marketed to or what we're accustomed to and kind of look at it, look at things from a different eye and reduce the waste. So that's really been exciting. And we allude to some of that, but also we talk about how you can grow your own garden, grow your own vegetables. It's rewarding. It's therapeutic. And you also figure out how much work it is, but it's really a great way to be able to get the kids involved in looking at vegetables and loving vegetables by, you know, being involved in growing their own garden with mom and dad. And it, if we can get kids really to enjoy vegetables at a young stage, it can just be a lifetime of health and well-being by eating fresh vegetables. Uh, what response have you received from those who have read your book? Well, nobody's thrown the book at us yet. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been good. It was quite a, a task to do the book. I think that we've got some good response to it. You know, it has to be kind of folded in, especially on a small family farm. It's not uh, that we stop the rest of our world and just write a book. We've had to continue to, to fight through COVID like everybody else, but also try and find a way to get a 600 page book done. Jamie Simpson, who's the chef liaison at the Culinary Vegetable Institute and his team there, uh, which is part of the farm here, um, really work tirelessly on these uh, recipes and working through these and did a tremendous job. Uh, Kristen Donnelly from Pennsylvania. She was the senior editor at Food and Wine for 10 years. Uh, she helped us work through this as well. And we had a lot of a lot of folks that really worked hard to put this book together. We had a very good response to it. They bill you as a celebrity farmer. I don't know if you consider yourself in those terms, you've done so much. You were telling us about the places you've sent your vegetables. You've also been a Jeopardy answer. I know you've been on TV shows and radio shows. What's it like doing all that? Well, I am definitely not a celebrity. I'm a dirt farmer. I am very proud that I got to work every single day for 40 years with my father, Bob Jones, and the entire team. I work with my brother. Uh, my mom's still involved. I have a niece involved and a nephew involved a son that's involved and extended family. Uh, it's absolutely, you know, the old adage about, you You know, if you love what you do, you never work a, a day in your life. It's, it's not completely true, but it sure helps. I can't imagine doing anything else. I'm not a celebrity. I'm a dirt farmer and I'm just one of a, one part of a big team that's really working towards a committed goal of growing the healthiest, most nutritious, sexiest vegetables humanly possible in the world. And when you have 156 people that are focused on one goal of trying to grow those vegetables, I believe we can make a difference. And everybody that's listening can too. Please get out to those farmers markets and support those small family farms. And we would love to see you out at Farmer Jones Farm here in Huron, Ohio at the Chef's Garden. 
Thanks so much. I really enjoyed talking with you all today. And you guys do such a terrific job there at the Euclid Library. It's one of those thankless jobs that's so important and so worthwhile. And you do your job every single day. And gosh, we don't say thank you for the great work that you all do every single day. And we're grateful to have such a tremendous service right here in our community. Well, we appreciate it very much. And you said that you do have people from you could come out there. I think I'm going to have to add my name to the list. Um, so it's called Farmer Jones Market in Huron. And what are the hours usually? Farmer Jones Farm Market in Huron, Ohio. Uh, right now, with with the labor issues, we've struggled with having enough labor. We're open nine to three on Saturdays. Uh, we are going to try and open up a few more days. Uh, most of us that are working the farm market are working 40 or 50 hours during the week here on the farm and then doing the farm market on Saturday. Saturday's the main day. We'd love to see you out. Come on out. And say hello, and let's talk veggies. I think I said on the way to Cedar Point, you can stop there. I think it's on the way to your place, you can stop at Cedar Point. Your place sounds like the, the destination. Well, thank you so much. That's very kind. I'm just grateful to be with you all today. And the book is called The Chef's Garden. You can get it on Amazon. You can go to the library. I'm sure you guys sell it at your farm market. We do. So make sure you grab a copy of that as well. Anybody that's on Instagram? Farmer Lee Jones, take some pictures of what you created home and share with us. We'd love to see what you created home. And you have a website as well? Yep, the, the chefs-garden.com. Uh, we'd, we'd love for you to take a look and see what, what you can do. And, you know, this uh, home delivery thing is pretty cool. You know, what do you get Aunt Lara in Colorado who already has three of everything? You know, get her a box of vegetables or get her a subscription to uh, um, a year's supply of vegetables and tell her that you care about her health and her well-being and you want her to live to 120. Certainly. Well, thank you very much for joining us. I know you've got a lot in your days every day, it sounds like. So thanks for spending a little bit of time with us and telling us about your life and your farm. It's been my pleasure. And remember, eat your veggies. And now the news you cannot use. If you think libraries are all deadly serious, someone in Canada is out to change your mind. CTV, Canada's largest privately owned television network, has given the green light to Shelved, a comedy that takes place in a fictional Toronto library. Anthony Q. Farrell, who is a staff writer for The Office, is behind the sitcom. Lindy Greenwood, best known for her role in Sleepy Hollow, will star as the head of the library. Plans are for the show to premiere sometime during the 2022-23 television season. And the adage goes that nobody reads the sign, but some people did. The DailyMail.com collected pictures of several offbeat library signs that one would think weren't necessary. One college library posted a sign that asked people to take their crying to a nearby stairwell so those studying nearby weren't disturbed. Another library asked people to keep a certain door closed in the evening so bats could not fly into the building. One more library asked his patrons to keep the library a spaghetti-free zone. Hopefully none of those signs will be needed at Euclid Public Library. And that's the library news you cannot use. Thanks for listening to Checked Out. You can learn more about Euclid Public Library by stopping in or going to our website, euclidlibrary.org.